All right, y'all. So this morning, I thought initially that we were going to wrap up our series on the book of Hebrews, but I was wrong. So we are going to have one more sermon, one more study in Hebrews, and we're going to finish with the last chapter of the book. I feel like it's just not appropriate to get all the way to the end of chapter 12 and then not read Hebrews 13, not talk about it. So we're going to do Hebrews 13 next week. And since it's taken as a unit, it's not one of those places I think you can divide up a lot. So we're just going to look at the whole thing. A good chunk of it is the benediction at the end. So we won't unpack that too much, but we'll be looking at Hebrews 13 next week. But this week, we're going to look at Hebrews 12, verses 12 through 24. 12, uh, sorry, not 12 through 24. Uh, we're going to look at uh, 12 through 28. So that was a typo on the notes. I apologize for that. So it's Hebrews 12 through 28. So we're going to finish up chapter 12. <clears throat> so we're going to look at this in section since it's a bunch of text. Let's read the first section, which is on your notes for you. So starting in verse number 12, Wherefore lift up the hands which hang down and the feeble knees and make straight paths for your feet, lest that which is lame be turned out of the way, but let it rather be healed. Follow peace with all men in holiness, without which no man shall see the Lord. So we'll stop right there and talk about that. Um, The whole lesson this morning is revolving around three imperatives which are emboldened be strong refuse not and have grace and so last week we looked at a warning passage we talked about the chastening of the lord what that meant this week he's going to exhort his audience a little bit more under those three imperatives be strong refuse not and have grace And so looking at that first line again, it says, Wherefore, lift up the hands which hang down and the feeble knees, and make straight paths for your feet, lest that which is lame be turned out of the way, but rather let it be healed. And as I was reading that, I couldn't help think, and this is sort of a rabbit trail, we're not going to follow today, but I couldn't help but think, maybe Luke is the one who wrote this. So there's lots of different debates about who wrote Hebrews, right? And it's very Pauline in the sense that the same ideas that are in Paul's letters are rehashed here, but yet there's enough of a difference to say maybe it's another person. And this person who wrote Hebrews does say that they had received from those who were eyewitnesses. So this implies that the person wasn't an eyewitness. We know that Luke was not an eyewitness, but he was one who interviewed the eyewitnesses. So again, the fact that he was a physician and a follower of the eyewitnesses, it it just makes it very compelling that the person who wrote these words about feeble hands, um, or sorry, feeble knees, and it says here in verse number 13, lest that which is lame be turned out of the way, and and literally in the Greek, turned out of the way refers to dislocation. And So he seems to be referring in these anatomical medical terms, he's very specific, and so I can't help but wonder if Luke is the one who wrote this. But we don't know. We'll find out one day. That's my guess right now. But in verse 14, he says, Follow peace with all men and holiness without which no man shall see the Lord. So the specific application of be strong, stand up, is first to follow peace 
and holiness. And this has to do with our relationship with other people. So he's not just talking to them as individuals. He's talking to them as a congregation. And he's saying that the way that you become strong and you finish this race well is by following peace and holiness. So that's specifically what you need to do. Uh, This is a ministry of reconciliation that uh, Paul talks about in 2 Corinthians chapter 5. He mentions a ministry of reconciliation. And that reconciliation is not just for the church to reach out to the lost and to try to bring the lost in, but it's also a ministry of reconciliation among each other because we still have sin in our midst as believers and we need to bear that in mind. So follow peace and holiness. And it mentions here in verse 12, lift up the hands which hang down. That doesn't seem to be referring to the individual lifting themselves up. It seems to be referring to you lifting up another person. So there's a personal application here in verse 13. He says, make your path straight. So he's saying that's you. Okay, you make your path straight. Okay, keep your eyes set on the prize. Focus on the Lord. But at the same time, help those people that are too, too burdened to handle it all on their own. And if we're all doing that, because we all have those burdens, but those burdens are more acute depending on your situation in life. We're supposed to keep our path straight. And when we're running along and we see one of our brothers or sisters in Christ starting to fall, and it looks like, you know, they might become lame and have a dislocation. So that's the imagery here. We need to lift them up and help them sort of shoulder some of their burden so they can continue in the race themselves because we are going to be bound to need the same thing eventually. We're going to be lame and in danger of being dislocated and falling off the path. And they're there to help us along the way as well. So it's a beautiful picture, I think, of how the church is meant to be characterized by togetherness. And really, we don't see that very much nowadays. I mean, the churches get so big to where the togetherness is limited to just a small group here, a small group there. And a lot of times, small groups are no different than clubs. You can have a really valuable, a really um, a really connected small group. But you can also have what a lot of people imagine of Sunday school. We just come in, we learn, and we go, right? And I think that's what I loved and I look forward so much to our Sunday school class. And that was because we all love being around each other. And we were genuinely concerned about what happened in each other's lives. And that spilled over into us hanging out in each other's homes and, and being with each other to eat and fellowship without any program involved. And that's the way it's meant to be. So he's saying right here, okay, you need to do two things. One, remember the prize. Remember the consequences of falling out of the race. And we talked about those last week and we'll rehash them in just a minute. But don't just think about yourself. Think about other people too, because you're in the family of God now. And so you need to be concerned, not just about your own burdens, but about those of your brothers and sisters. So follow peace and holiness. Uh, You know, peace has to do, of course, with the kindness and compassion that we show to people, including lost people, but also those who are in the church. But holiness, of course, takes even further. It doesn't say just make peace with everybody at the expense of what's truthful, at the expense of what's right. Holiness here refers to making peace with people, but at the same time, not compromising. And this would even be in a church. Okay. There was church discipline back in the day. It's not really done nowadays, but it was done back in the day. So you would try to make peace with that person. You would go to that person and say, Hey, listen, you know, this is going on. We need to fix this. And if that person didn't listen, you'd bring another person with you to talk to him. And then if that didn't work, you brought him before the church. The idea is you're trying to make peace, but at the same time, you're the church, you're holy, you're a saint, you need to act like it. And if you don't, there are consequences. So follow peace 
Try to do your best to reconcile with people, but at the same time be holy. And so this has to do with our calling as a priest. Um, in chapter 4, I'm going to real quick refer to this. I think it's chapter four, maybe chapter three. It's actually chapter three, verse one. Uh, it says, wherefore, holy brethren. So again, holiness. Wherefore, holy brethren, partakers of the heavenly calling, not just salvation, but a calling, a profession. Consider the apostle and high priest of our profession, Christ Jesus. And then it goes on and talks about how we have this awesome privilege of being in God's house. And this house refers to the tabernacle. And so being in God's house means there's stuff to do. And this is literal too. This isn't just a metaphor. It's literal in heaven. In Revelation, it mentions martyrs uh, serving before God in his tabernacle. And it mentions people going into the temple in heaven, people going outside uh, at one point because no one's permitted to go in. But there's this idea that this service as a priest, it carries over into heaven when we die. Um, I think that's one of those privileges that the author was saying you don't want to miss out on. And that's why he says in chapter three, just kind of going back and reviewing that, he mentions how if we hold fast to our profession, if we hold fast to our calling and we're, faith, we're faithful in it, we're fulfilling that, then um, we are part of God's house with all the benefits and privileges thereof. But if we don't hold fast, then we miss out on those privileges. And so we don't know all of what that in involves, but imagine if you were an Israelite and you lived in the Old Testament days and those priests got to go up into the tabernacle place you would never be allowed to go for your entire life. You're never going to be able to go up in there. And they got to fellowship and eat the, the table or eat at the table of showbread to eat those loaves. This idea of closeness to God, of special fellowship, special access, that was something that the people in general did not have. It was for a priest. And so now contrasting with the Levitical system, we're priests after the order of Melchizedek because we're identified with Christ and we all have that special access to God. Okay, this people, this nation, a holy nation has access to God that way, but you can still miss out on it. And so you wonder in heaven where it talks about those elders who are sitting there on those 24 thrones, right? And they're serving before God. Will everybody have the opportunity to sit on one of those thrones? Will everybody have that closeness to God? Or will we be one of those on the outskirts that fails to partake of the privilege because we didn't hold fast to our calling. So that's something here to keep in mind, uh, to be a priest. And this goes all the way back to Genesis. It's one of those concepts I think you could write a whole book on, and probably somebody has. But in Genesis chapter 1, where it talks about Adam having dominion, the Hebrew phrase that's used there also is used all throughout the book of Leviticus to refer to a high priest coming into his ministry. The, the high priest... Um, partaking of that special calling. And so it appears that Adam and Eve were priests of God from the very outset. And their, their calling was to have special access to God because they were his children. And they were to so, sort of reflect that light to the world around them in the way that they, you know, would plow the ground, in the way that they had communion with the animals. The whole idea is they come between God and the rest of creation. And that's what a priest does, is coming between God and someone, something else. And so he's saying, you're that priest, so follow peace and follow holiness. And then he says, without which no one will see God. And that's something that I want to talk about here because it's one of these passages, I think, in Hebrews that a lot of people get hung up on. The idea among some preachers is that if you're not following peace and you're not living a life of holiness and you don't have something 
to, to claim as far as your righteousness goes in life, then you won't see the Lord. There's actually a guy who wrote an article, and this was a very popular article by a popular ministry, and it essentially said that you can't get into heaven without at least some holiness. So you have to be saved as a believer, and you have to live in a holy manner, and you have to have some of it or you won't see God. But that's not what it says here. It doesn't say you have to have some of it. okay? And, and if that's the case, then our whole life would be plagued by a lack of assurance because we're going to wonder, do I have enough? Do I have enough holiness? Because i got to believe in Jesus, right? But I've also got to have so much of this other stuff called holiness. So do I have enough of it? Am I living righteous enough? He does. And so there's two ways of looking at this text, and I think both are viable. I think both make sense. I'm not entirely sure which one, okay? Uh, but I'm going to share both of them with you. The first one is to say that the author is saying you have holiness. That's why you can be confident you're going to see God. If you didn't have that holiness through Christ, like you just said, Christy, if you didn't have that holiness, you wouldn't see God. So you need to act according to that knowledge. You've been made holy. You've been brought into the family of God. You've been purified. You've been given this calling. It's all unconditional. It's all based on your relationship with Jesus. So you need to live that way. It's sort of like saying uh, you need to start showing thankfulness for what the Lord has done because he's just giving you righteousness without which you would have been cast off for all eternity. Now that you have that righteousness, you ought to start living that way. So it's not if you don't, you won't get into heaven, you won't see God. It's this is what you have freely. Remember why you have it, why you needed it, and apply that to your life. So to me, it would be like, okay, Lord, uh, you saved me. You forgave me. What'd you forgive me from? What'd you, what'd you save me from? Well, you forgave me of my sins and you saved me from the wickedness that I had done. And so I need to start living differently. Not because if I don't, I'm not going to make it because that would nullify the free gift. But that's what God called me to do um, in Ephesians 2, 8, uh, 9 through 10. Um, it mentions that by grace we're um, saved through faith and it's not of works. It's not our own doing, uh, lest any man should boast. But then it says, for we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus unto good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. So this idea in the, in the same breath, he says, we're saved by grace through faith. You are not saved by your works. Absolutely don't try to add to that. If you do that, then you're in sin by nullifying the grace of God. That was a whole letter that he wrote to Galatians about that. But then he says, okay, now that we've been saved, we need to walk in good works. So we're not saved by the works, but we need to walk in it. So that's probably what is being said here. He's saying, you wouldn't be seeing God. You wouldn't have that hope, that knowledge that you're going to heaven one day if it wasn't for the holiness that you have already in Christ Jesus. So you need to, on the basis of that grace you've been shown, follow peace with all men and live a holy life. You're holy in your position. Be holy in your practice. So that's what a number of commentators argue is the meaning there. And that's very reasonable because other places that same theme is, is communicated to us. But another way of looking at it, I think, is almost equally as good. And it says that this doesn't really have to do with the person getting to heaven. This doesn't have to do with the individual. It has to do with other people. So he's saying, if you don't live a holy life, people aren't going to see God. And you know what? That makes a lot of sense. Because he's saying here, follow peace with all men, right? So he's talking about a relationship with other people. He's saying, if you don't follow peace with all men, if you're not holy in the way you live your life, then people aren't going to see God. 
and aren't you called to be a priest? Aren't you called to reflect God to the lost and to one another? Yes. So your main calling is to reflect the light of Christ to those around you, whatever crowd that is, whatever group that is. And in chapter one, it mentions that Jesus is the radiance of the father, right? So the radiance refers to not something reflected. It refers to something shining forth from. So like from the original. So Jesus is from the original. He's 100% God. He's 100% like the father. And we are the ones who reflect him. We reflect his glory. So he's saying, if you're not following peace and you're not living in a holy life, you're reflecting nothing. And if you're not reflecting anything, then no one's going to see God. And you know what? That should bother us. It should really bother us if we're not reflecting God to those around us. So again, this has to do with our calling as a priest. I don't know about y'all, but I find it a great honor to be a priest of God. The priesthood of the believer is one of these teachings of the Baptist faith that has been really set apart and really emphasized that we all have direct access to God. And when we come together as a church, we're supposed to be reflecting that light to each other. And when we go out to the world, man, we have an amazing calling. And that is to stand apart, not to judge the world, but to show the world who our Savior is. And and that, of course, has so many applications. Me and Katie were watching um, Little House on the Prairie. And in Little House on the Prairie, they were talking about what happens if our church... Uh, doesn't work out because there was a really big dispute going on. What if we don't go to church? What if that doesn't work? He said, we'll have church here. Mm. And you know what? I thought that's really powerful in that he is the head of the household. And in a special way as priest, he is to reflect that light of Christ to his family. And in a special way that even the father can't, the mother reflects that light to her children. And and we're trying to raise them up in the way of the Lord so they can reflect light to their friends, people that will never really sit down and have a conversation with us, but we'll talk to them. And so this whole idea of reflecting light and being a priest of God is an amazing thing to consider. And it's going to translate into the kingdom whenever we get there. Uh, There are going to apparently be different uh, levels of privilege. And, And we, again... We don't have all the details, but if you look in Revelation, there's this interesting thing that all the commentators bring up, all of them mention, and it's you got the kings and the nations. Well, who are the kings and who are the nations? Well, the nations are safe people that are not reigning, and the kings are safe people who are reigning. And, and so I think what is said so much in the New Testament is if you want to have the fullest access to God as a priest, if you really want to have not necessarily a promotion, but you want to have all that you came into. That's another thing that the New Testament talks about a lot. When we get saved, we're brought into our firstborn inheritance. We already have it, right? It's kind of like Esau. He had it, but he gave it up. He, he gave up his birthright, okay? Now, he, did he enjoy it? No, because he gave it up before it actually came to him, right? But it was always there. All we had to do was just hold on to it and not let it go. Of course, he gave it up. And that's something that's mentioned here. We already have this birthright. We already have it. So when you think about where am I, like on that, <laughs> the social ladder, you could say, in the kingdom, you're already at the top because that is your inheritance. But you can lose the inheritance. So don't lose it. Hold fast to your profession. Okay, getting an inheritance is not about, you know, thinking, all right, well, I start out down here and I've got to work really hard up the ladder. No, God brought you to the family at the top of the ladder with Jesus. And all he wants you to do is hold fast that profession. That's all he wants you to do. He's not saying start a church. Impress me. God doesn't say that. He doesn't say start a mega church and then I'll let you be a king. Okay. You know, baptize 500 people 
and I'll let you be a king. No, he's saying just hold fast to that profession of faith wherever you're at. And it may seem like little to you, but little to me is much. He who is faithful in little is faithful in much. And so it doesn't have to be a dazzling, a dazzling ex, a display like something like you're a missionary and you work for the SBC and you're writing down how many people you've shared the gospel with, how many people have come to know the Lord, how many people have been baptized. It's not like we deliver a resume and we hope, okay, in the end, God's going to give us that privilege. You already have the privilege. Just don't mess it up. And messing it up would involve, as he mentions here, living a life of sin. He mentions fornication. And he mentions abandoning your profession. Those are the two main things that are talked about a lot in the New Testament. Don't mess up when it comes to doctrine. Okay? Don't defame the name of the Lord. Okay? Don't deny grace. Don't deny the deity of Christ. And share those things with people and never compromise those things. And live a pure life. And, and, and those things, right? And living the pure life doesn't mean you don't mess up because they had messed up. Okay? But living a life of fornication could... If no repentance is involved, okay, if there's no repentance, then it could involve a loss of that birthright. So let's keep reading because it mentions the birthright here in, in this text. Uh, the next thing uh, for number one is look diligently. So that has to do with you and God. Looking diligently, I think, has to do with remembering that we're saved by grace. It says, looking diligently, lest any man fail of the grace of God, lest any root of bitterness spring up, trouble you, and thereby many be defiled. I think this is a pharisaical attitude. A person who fails of the grace of God, he's not really looking diligently. Maybe he's pursuing holiness in his life, but he gets so confident in himself that he's not thinking about where he came from. He's not thinking about grace. He's not saying, man, I would never be here. I would never have this if it wasn't for the grace of Jesus Christ. He gets all the glory. He deserves all the praise. But no, this person's saying, I worked really hard to get here. Me, 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 I, 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 I. And that person is going to have bitterness because they're going to look around at people who are not where they're at in their mind and they're going to mistreat them and they're going to judge them. This is what happened in the church of Galatia. There were the people that said, I've been circumcised. All right. I, I bet you they were saying, I keep these feasts. I have a kosher diet. I celebrate the Sabbath. I celebrate the new moon. <laughs> look at you people. You should be ashamed of yourselves. You know, they were looking down on others. And that sort of bitterness, I think, is what he's talking about here. So he's saying, yeah, on the, on the one side, you should pursue holiness as the New Testament defines it. And what is holiness? Fulfilling our calling. And if you want to know what that calling is, read the New Testament. It doesn't involve keeping the festivals, which, by the way, I think would be a great thing for us to do that as a church. But it's not something that we do because we have to do it. It's something that we do because we simply want to. And if we chose not to do it, the Lord's not going to look down upon us for that. But there was this idea that if I do all of these things, these extra things, then I'll make myself more holy. And that resulted in people being self-righteous and judging other people. And so we got to be really careful that we don't do that. While we're pursuing holiness, we don't get puffed up and we fail of the grace of God. Because that would be failing of the grace of God in the sense that we are not living in light of God's grace. And he talks a lot about that. He says, hold on to grace. Lay hold of grace. What does that mean? Live your entire life as if grace is at the forefront of your mind. And if grace is at the forefront of your mind, what are you going to do? You're going to be thankful. You can't help it. You can't help be thankful if you're thinking about grace all the time. You can't. You can't help being compassionate if you think about grace all the time. If, if you're in a moment and, and your sin nature starts to come up and you're wanting to say something you shouldn't say, and all of a sudden the grace of God's right there in your mind, it's, it's front and center. What are you going to do? You're going to think, man, Jesus saved me from my sins. I ought to show this person mercy. 
And that's what we ought to do. Whenever we start to become workspace, we forget that grace. And ironically, the people that are trying really, really hard to be holy end up becoming bitter and self-righteous and judgmental. It's the opposite of what they intended to do. It does, and it leads them to falling. So I think the, the most natural thing to do as a Christian is to think about the love that God has shown us, and that's going to result in us loving other people. And of course, depending on the circumstance, that'll result in a lot of different things, but it's not about the things itself. It's about the motivation behind it all, and that is the grace of God. So be careful that you, you don't miss sight of that. Look diligently. Make sure that you have that close relationship with God. And we already talked about the consequence of what, of what it will be if you don't do these things. Men won't see God and you'll lose your birthright. It says in verse number 16, Lest there be any fornicator or profane person as Esau, who for one morsel of meat sold his birthright. For ye would know, or sorry, ye know how that afterward, when he would have inherited the blessing, he was rejected. For he found no place of repentance, though he sought it carefully with tears. Sought it carefully with tears means he tried to change Isaac's mind. So this is describing, I think, the potential of a person. And again, I, I think a person who's glorified and in heaven isn't going to think that it can change. If they messed up and they weren't living their life for the Lord and then they went up, they're going to already know. Okay, but again, this is an analogy. The idea is when you get there to heaven, you're going to desire to go back and change it and you're not going to be able to change it. Esau couldn't change Isaac's mind. It was done, and you won't be able to change the way you made your choices as a Christian. So while you have the time to live a life um, faithful to the Lord, do that, because if you fall into sin, and specifically it mentions fornication, and I think it's because fornication, obviously, is it's very physical. It's about what's physically attractive. For Esau, it was a bowl of soup. Okay, his stomach was rumbling at a physical urge, physical satisfaction. He didn't think about the consequences. He just went for it. And so that's what happens. A lot of people will say after the fact, man, I really regret making that decision. But in the moment, it was like, I, I wanted it. I wanted it so bad. And so I gave into it, right? The, it was right there in front of him, like that bowl of soup. And so what the author is saying is don't slip into sin, physical sin in particular, because it's only a morsel and it's going to pass away like that. And you're going to regret it, but there's going to be nothing that can be done about it after that. And, and again, this is, this is not saying that someone can't commit a sin like this and repent and turn their life around and God say, well done, good and faithful servant. Okay. I think this is mainly describing someone who lives a pattern of sin in their life. And when they go on to be with the Lord, they had lived the life of sin and not repentance. So go ahead. It's almost going on in my head right now is the fact that in the Old Testament sexual sin didn't seem to be a big thing what I, because it's like um, I forget who it was when he slept with his daughter-in-law because Judah. it was Judah right so he slept with his daughter-in-law thinking that she was a prostitute and it was like there was no mention of oh that you the, slept with a prostitute you went, yeah <laughs> and all that or the fact that she did what she did yeah both sinned horrifically and but I it, it doesn't even talk about the fact that all those yeah. and, I, and I think that that's why we have the other information that was given later at the law. The law would indicate that if you do do this, then that's adultery and you shall surely die. Right. So I think God was demonstrating when he gave the law, if y'all thought that I didn't really have a problem with that stuff, yeah. now you know going forward, if you do something like that, you'll be put to death. A lot of people... 
it, it, okay. And in that situation, that that's one of those things where I would say, yeah, that was sin. It did not fit the pattern that God gave for man and woman. However, it was one of those things where you had no, even after the law though, it's like, it was, it was marriage. It was marriage. So it wasn't considered adultery, but it was what it was, what you might call a loophole. Okay. It was one of those loopholes and God permitted it. And the question is, why did God permit it? Cause obviously God doesn't approve. So why did he permit it? I think it was probably because in that culture, um, women needed men to take care of their needs and provide for them. And so if you were, if you, if you had seven women, okay, who didn't have husbands and without the husbands, there would be no one to provide for them. It's a cruel world. They couldn't just go get a job. All right. They could sell themselves. Okay. But that would not be the right option either. And so if let's say David, he marries one woman and then there's these others women. What's his motivation? Obviously it's, it's physical. Okay. He wants another wife. However, God permitted it because it actually served the purpose of providing the needs for these women in a, in a culture where something like that would have been. Right. I'm thinking about Sheba, right? And that's where he really sinned mm-hmm. was because she was being provided for. Yeah. Yeah. And then he took her. And, and he killed somebody her. in order to, yeah, to get it. And then he tried to cover it up. Right. But, um, yeah, I think that polygamy is one of those things where in cultures today that are similar to biblical cultures where women need a man like that. Uh, this is where missionaries, they debate this all the time. This is one of those things that will come up if you have a missions class in college and we debated about it. And there were some in the 1800s like, uh, Livingston, when he went to Africa, he really, he really butt heads with a local chieftain about this because this guy had lots of wives and he accepted Christ. He believed it. But he wouldn't get rid of his wives. He wouldn't divorce his wives. And Livingston was like, you have to do this. Like, and many other missionaries would say, well, God didn't force David to divorce his additional wives or Abraham or anything like that or Solomon, goodness gracious. But he shouldn't, this guy shouldn't add any more wives. He shouldn't, he shouldn't. So he recognized this is not ideal. I shouldn't have done this. I shouldn't have more women, okay? But the women that he is married to, if we were living in the Old Testament economy, it appears that God, for the cultural reasons at least, would say, I permit it, though this is not something I approve of, I am going to tolerate it. There are certain things that God will tolerate. Uh, He will not judge someone for even though he doesn't approve of it. And so I think that was probably one of those things. Yeah. And so I, I would agree with that. Treating them biblically is totally counterculture because they have the wives living like on the ground floor with the pigs mm-hmm. while the men right. live in the high house. Yeah, right. exactly. So revolutionize their marriage. Yeah. Um, but yeah, that's one of those tough subjects. Obviously, God doesn't approve of polygamy. In our culture, there'd be zero excuse for that at all because there is a means for uh, women having provision apart from attaching themselves to a man. Um, and that was something that, and and even having children, they, they would need a man to give them a child. So that way that child could provide for them in their old age. So it's just a very different way of living today. We have programs, 
you know, you have government aid, you have humanitarian organizations, you have churches, you have lots of different ways. But back then, it was just a very different world. And so I think that God took all those factors into consideration. But moving on from that, because we need to keep looking at all this, uh, let's keep reading verse number 19, or sorry, 18. For ye are not coming to the mount that might be touched, and that burned with fire, nor unto blackness and darkness and tempest and the sound of a trumpet and the voice of words, which voice they that heard entreated that the word should not be spoken to them any more. For they could not endure that which was commanded. And if so much as a beast touched the mountain, it shall be stoned or thrust through with the dark. And so terrible was the sight that Moses said, I exceedingly fear and quake. So the rationale at the very end of this first imperative to be strong is you are come to a better mountain. And that's what he says in verse 22. But ye are come unto Mount Zion and unto the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem, and to an innumerable company of angels, to the general assembly and church of the firstborn, which are written in heaven, and to God, the judge of all, and to the spirits of just men made perfect, and to Jesus, the mediator of the new covenant, and to the blood of sprinkling that speaketh better things than that of Abel. So he's contrasting. He says, think about the law. Okay, imagine how serious the law was. It was terrifying. Now compare the terror of the law with the glory of grace. And when it mentions Abel here, the blood of Jesus speaks better things than Abel. When Abel's blood was shed, it says that God like heard the blood crying out for vengeance. Abel's blood demanded vengeance, punishment. The blood of Jesus demands something very different. The blood of Jesus demands forgiveness. That's the contrast. He's saying back in the day, thinking under the old economy, there was the fire on the mountain. There was you touch this mountain and you will die. Even if an animal touches the mountain, they shall die. And even Moses, the one who was permitted to go up on the mountain, was terrified. He said, you haven't come to that now. You've come to this great assembly of the firstborn. So you're now exalted to this position with Christ in unity with Christ as members of his body. You've come to the heavenly Jerusalem, which is better than the old Jerusalem. You've come to, it says, the spirits of just men made perfect, which probably refers to how in the Old Testament people were justified. But now through the Holy Spirit, they are born again. So that, that you exactly, you are perfected. Before you were justified, God tolerated your sin, but you knew still every time you offered up a sacrifice, it was a reminder, judgment is required. Judgment is required. Well, now that's been done away with. Those sacrifices as a reminder of judgment are removed. Now you are in your spirit sanctified and made perfect. So he's saying that's definitely something to be excited about. And, and for that reason, you should be strong. And he goes on to the next imperative. Verse number 25. See that you refuse not him that speaketh. For if they escape not who refused him that spake on earth, much more shall we not escape if we turn away from him that speaketh from heaven. Which no, no doubt that's probably referring to um, Jesus speaking from heaven because his origin is heavenly. Whose voice then shook the earth, but now he hath promised, saying, yet only... Sorry. Yet once more, I shake the wording of the King James here is very tough. <laughs> Yet once more, I shake not the earth only, but also heaven. And this word yet once more signifieth the removing of those things that are shaken as of things that are made, that those things which cannot be shaken may remain. Wherefore, we receiving a kingdom which cannot be moved, let us have grace 
whereby we may serve God acceptably with reverence and godly fear, for our God is a consuming fire. So he says, refuse not, for you shall not escape. If you take this wonderful grace that's been showed to you, and you trample on the blood of Jesus, as was mentioned earlier in Hebrews, and you dishonor him, and you treat him as if he ought to be put on the cross again, because you go and you identify with Judaism, which says that. The Jews said, crucify him. If you go back to them and you go back to the temple, then you're basically saying the same thing about Jesus. Let him be crucified again. Let him be crucified anew. If you do that, you will not escape. Now, exactly what does that mean? It means you won't escape judgment. You won't escape judgment of some sort. Now, what did that judgment involve? Well, in chapter 10, verse 29, he said, if in the Old Testament under the law, someone would be put to death on the basis of two or three witnesses, how much more shall it be worse for you who trample the blood of the covenant, this new covenant underfoot? So in the Old Testament, if you broke the law, it's very physical. There is a civil law. It's not spiritual. It was carried out by humans. Okay. It was like any other law that you would have in a nation. If you broke that law, then you'd be put to death. That's the penalty. It doesn't go beyond that, okay? In the New Testament, it does go beyond that because the, the New Testament is an everlasting covenant. It doesn't pertain to this, the, the physical. It pertains to the spiritual, to the heavenly. And so that means if you trample this blood, the consequence for that will be ongoing, will be everlasting. Now, again, the question is, is this talking about hell or is it talking about something else? It's not talking about hell because he's talking to sanctified people. He's already called them holy brethren. He's saying if you as a holy brethren or a member of the holy brethren who have been sanctified and been made holy in the eyes of God, you will experience an everlasting consequence if you refuse to hold to your profession. And again, it's not that hard. It's simply just holding to your profession. It's just believing and identifying with other believers. This wasn't going out on the street and street preaching. This was simply being a part of God's church and not being ashamed of that. And if you do that, then you'll be rewarded. There'll be a great privilege. You're a member of the firstborn. But if you refuse that, then you'll experience great loss. And Paul talked about this loss elsewhere. We know it doesn't refer to a loss of salvation because he says all of his works will be burned up. It will all be burned up. And he will suffer great loss, but he himself shall be saved. So escaping here, I think, refers to you will not escape the grave consequences of trampling the blood of Jesus as a Christian, as a saved person. You will not escape. It's like me talking to my kids like, listen, if you do what I told you not to do, you will not escape. Don't think that you're going to get away with it because you won't. Let's say, let's say persecution comes to our country because that's the context here. Yes. Persecution comes and someone, and someone's very weak in their faith. They would rather have what the world has to offer. They want to live, right? They, they want to be comfortable. They want to be able to buy and sell and all this other stuff. They want to live their life, okay? Yeah, exactly. And so they don't go to church anymore. And their, and their brothers and sisters in Christ say, why aren't you coming to church? No, no, no. I am not part of that anymore. I'm not with them. And that's basically what they do. I'm not with them, but they know the truth in their heart. Those people will not escape God's judgment. Now that judgment involves standing before the throne and experience shame and loss. It does not involve loss of salvation because the man whose house burns up and he has nothing, it says he himself shall be saved. It's basically, yeah, 
And that's what a lot of people do think. It's because they, they don't properly compare scripture with scripture. But the idea is uh, when you read Paul, like it, he's not downplaying at all. He's like, it will all burn up and this person will be saved. But, and he adds as like to tone that down, like people might say, oh, I'll be saved. I'm good. He's like, but as through fire, which describes a person being snatched out of a house. It's like me being in this house and people are telling me to get out of it. People are telling me to leave it. And I'm like, no, I want to stay. Okay. In the very end, someone reaches in and grabs me and pulls me out against my will. Yeah. And so when a person who's carnal and they're not living for the Lord experiences the discipline of God, it's like they're being snatched out. All right. If it was left up to them, then they would basically be choosing the end, the condemnation that comes with the world. But God's not going to allow that to happen because God has covenanted himself to us. It's like, uh, it, on the law book right now, uh, if you're a father, you can't sit in judgment of your child because you would be, you would be thought biased if you did that. So you're not allowed to. Okay. So a judge cannot judge their child. Okay. Somebody else can judge them, judge them. But here's the thing. When it comes to eternal judgment, the only judge is God. And so he has covenanted himself to us in, in the sense to where, even though we certainly deserve judgment, and especially so if we trample on the blood of Jesus, he's covenanted himself to us and the blood of Christ covers us to where we will be saved even though we were snatched out. It's like there was nothing in our life that made this person look like a priest, an overcomer, a child of God. But he knows even when the world doesn't. God knows all things. I would, I would ask that person. I just want to talk to him and I'd say, okay, this is what the gospel teaches. Do you agree with it? And if they said, yeah, I agree with everything you said. I agree with the gospel. But, um, I think that, I think that this particular viewpoint, like this, a particular interpretation of the Bible, which says homosexuality is wrong. I think y'all have got that all wrong. I think that person certainly knows better. They have the Holy spirit if they're a believer. And so they can't, they can't suppress the Holy spirit to where they can't hear him at all. But I think that they can quench the spirit. I think they can grieve them, grieve their, uh, grieve the Holy Spirit, uh, harden their hearts. And uh, they were in danger of doing the same thing here. He says, "Don't harden your hearts." Speaking to the Hebrews, I think those people, if they're really saved again, um, they might not be. Maybe the reason they're living like an unbeliever is because they are one. But it could be that they are a believer. So th again, that would be something if I talked to them and they shared their knowledge of the gospel and they said, "Yeah, I certainly believe that," or "I believe it now." then I would say, okay, well, then you're a carnal believer. I wouldn't automatically say, no, you're lying to me. You, you think you're saved, but you're really not. I would say, if you actually believe this at one time in your life, then you are saved. And um, you're not going to want to stand before Jesus one day. When you're in that position of living in rebellion intentionally, it, you, buy, you lie to yourself like that you, you, you feel like you're justified. I think that people that just continue to do that stop feeling that conviction. And if they fall into an area where they're being, like, having the lies fed into them and, and um, 
They could sear validating, their hearts. Yeah, validating the untruth that they're believing. Unless they get pulled back from that. They're still saved, but they're, they, can live their, they can live their whole life in error. But the fact that they're so angry with the truth indicates indicates that there is that undercurrent of conviction so again it could be that it's a person who hasn't accepted christ and that's why they act the way they do or it could be someone who has so in this case these people we know without a doubt like they're believers he said they're holy brethren but so he says you will not escape if you think that you can just smack jesus in the face essentially then um you got something coming to you the lord's going to surprise you but again, that wouldn't involve a loss of salvation. So um, let's wrap it up. Be strong, refuse not, and have grace. And that last one, have grace, guys, um, it's translated differently depending on um, which version you look at. Uh, some people think it should be translated as uh, be thankful. But I think have grace means hold on to grace. Hold on to it. Like right now, they were thankful for what Jesus had done for them. And that was keeping them from going into the sin. That was keeping them from going and abandoning their faith because they knew they would feel guilty about it. Like there was still that, that temptation to leave Christianity because if I do, I'll save myself. But because Jesus had saved them and they were thankful and grateful, they were not willing to go yet. So that's why he's saying, hold on to it. Like you've got it right now. That's what's kept you from going so far. Other people have already left. You haven't yet. So hold on to that grace and it will lead you to be grateful. And if you have that gratefulness, it's going to keep you from going into sin. So whole, have grace. Think about grace. Every single day, we should remind ourselves of where we were, of where we are now, and why. And that's because of the grace of Jesus. And, and that will direct the way we talk to people. That will direct the way we act. And, uh, and that's essentially what he's saying there. But um, we have gone on way past our ordinary cutoff time. So let's go ahead and pray, and then we'll have some food. Dear Lord, thank you so much for all the blessings that you've given us. I pray, God, that we will be strong. I pray that uh, we will stand with you and not compromise, that we'll help one another. Uh, I pray, God, that we will move forward. I pray, God, that we will refuse not to serve you and that we will lay hold of that grace always, that we'll keep it right at the forefront of our minds so we don't forget how good you've been to us. And uh, Lord, we just pray you'll forgive us in our shortcomings. Uh, help us to keep our sight on you, Lord, and reflect you to a lost world and reflect you to each other, that we won't just show the world you, but we'll show one another you uh, in our fellowship, in our, in our conversations, and everything that we do, that it will be in love and in grace. And I pray, God, for those who aren't here with us this morning, we pray that you'll keep them safe and bring it back to us. Uh, watch over us, Lord. We thank you for your grace. Pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.